Well, it's wonderful as always to see you here this morning, to hear you singing to our Savior, join our voices together, and now to sit together underneath God's word. We'll do that again by turning to Hebrews chapter 8 today. If you would, turn there if you're not there already. Hebrews chapter 8, as we finish out this wonderful chapter, looking at the old covenant versus the new covenant in Christ. It's no secret that none of us truly appreciate the many daily blessings that God has bestowed on us in the way that we should. Some of that's due simply to the fact that we've never known anything else than God's wonderful provision in so many ways. It's normal life to us. But on occasion, God gives us the gift of helping us to see the value of the things that he's given us in our temporal lives by either removing one of those temporal gifts or by giving us a glimpse into the lives of others who have not received a certain gift that we see as normal. This lesson was brought home to me personally in a unique way when I had the opportunity to go to Kenya on a mission trip. There are memories from that trip that are truly seared into my mind and my heart and I pray the effect of those memories never fades. We were there to give a conference for pastors to do pastoral training in several churches around the area there in Kenya. After a long flight and a couple of days to recover from jet lag, we set out to our first church to give our first conference. It was a long drive on bumpy dirt roads. And when we finally turned down the long dirt road that led ultimately to this church, we were met by a group of children ranging ages uh, five to 12, a group of about 20 to 30 kids that began to run alongside the van, joyously welcoming us with smiles from ear to ear. When we got to the church, that group of children welcomed us and then ran into the church. The church, of course, had no electricity. It was open air, open air doorways, open air uh, windows, dirt floors. The children run in and, and we began to hear the sound of singing. And so we entered into that church through the open doorway to see a scene of 30 or so children dancing and singing in unison songs of welcome and praise and thanks to the Lord. And it was more than I could take. The scene still gets me today. Children, no shoes, tattered clothes, clearly the only pair they had, dancing and singing with joy before the Lord. And I went out behind the church and just wept. Eventually the conference began and I had the chance to preach several times. And in between sessions, I had the opportunity to fellowship with different members of the church. And I remember one conversation with a young man in his early twenties. We were talking together about the goodness and the faithfulness of God which is not an uncommon conversation. I've had that conversation here with many of you on many occasions. So the, the topic wasn't unusual, but what was striking was when he began to list for me the things that he trusts God for. Because the first thing on the list caught my attention as he said, you know, for example, when I'm hungry and I don't have any food, I pray and I trust the Lord and he always provides for me a way to eat. It struck me that there's never been a time in my life in which I was hungry and didn't have the option to go and solve that with food. It's experiences like that that cause us to stand back and realize God has blessed us in this temporal life in ways that go beyond our imaginations that, that we just live life and, and rarely if ever thank him for. And that's compounded when we turn our eyes from the physical things to the spiritual things in our lives. There are spiritual gifts that God has given to us, his people, if you're in Christ, that, that are just beyond our true imaginations. As New Testament believers, we live in the new covenant. If you're a Christian, you've always lived under the new covenant. And so there are aspects of that new covenant that are just normal to us. This is just how we've always known God since we've come to know him. And we, we, if we're not careful, we can fail to realize that this is new. This has not always been this way. There are blessings that are ours this morning in Christ that we need to be grateful for and that we need to allow continually to propel us to live in, in light of those truths in a way that would please the Lord. 
And so it is we turn our mind back to Hebrews as he reminds us and brings us again to look at the glories of Christ specifically today through the new covenant that he has brought for us. If you haven't been with us, just very quickly, let me catch you up to speed. The theme of this wonderful letter that we've been studying is the superiority of Christ. And we're in a section from chapter eight, verse one, that will last until chapter 10, verse 18, looking at the superiority of Christ specifically as it relates to his covenant and his sacrifice. The new covenant that he brought and the superior sacrifice that he brought. And we're unpacking this grand idea and theme that Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. As we opened in chapter eight, we saw several things in those first six verses. We saw this announcement that believers have the superior high priest. We saw a description of that and the fact that Christ has a superior seat in the heavens and he has a superior sanctuary also in the heavens. We saw the necessity of his ministry and the shadow of his ministry and the superiority of his ministry. Now that led us into last week to start into this final section of chapter eight, verses seven to 13. We covered the first half of that, verses seven to nine last time. And what we've discovered is there are three components that we can structurally uh, arrange this passage around. Component number one is in verse seven, the statement we called it. Component number two is in uh, verses eight to 12, it's the support. And this is where we, we made it about halfway through this supporting argument last time. We'll pick up there again. But in order to refresh our memory, let's start with verse six in chapter eight and read our way down through verse 13. Chapter eight, verse six. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, behold, Days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, as I mentioned, we began this second component of these verses, the support, and this is a quote, remember, from Jeremiah 31. Specifically, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the only place in the Old Testament where the specific title New Covenant is given to describe this reality that would one day be true of God's people. As I mentioned last week, there are other passages, we'll see a few of them today, that describe the realities of the New Covenant, but it's here in Jeremiah 31 that God inspires the prophet Jeremiah to reveal that one day there will be a new covenant to replace the old. And here we have five details about this new covenant. We saw the first three of those details last week. We saw the recipients, specifically in context, he says this is to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that God is not done with his people Israel. But we also saw from the New Testament that God also has brought Gentiles into this new covenant and we are recipients of the new covenant. 
And in Romans 11, we saw that there will be a day in which God saves a great number of ethnic Jews who will come to know the benefits of this new covenant that he promised to them. And together we will enjoy the benefits of this new covenant. Detail number two is the renovation. We mentioned that the old covenant was conditional. That's important to keep in mind. The old covenant was conditioned upon the obedience of the Israelites to keep the law. And we saw there are blessings for obedience under the old covenant and there are curses for disobedience. And the people ultimately disobeyed and they received the consequences that God told them beforehand would be their consequences if they did so. That ushered in the need in Jeremiah 31 for this new covenant, a new covenant built on better promises. Detail number three was the reason, and the reason of course is what I've already mentioned. The people failed that condition of the covenant to keep the law, therefore they were banished ultimately from the land and the curses of the law came upon them. Now this leads us to a discussion of what are these better promises within the new covenant? Because understand, the new covenant is not better simply because it's new, right? Our, our culture is built around that idea. We always have to have new because new must be better. This isn't better just because it's new. It's better, the author of Hebrews says in verse six, because it's enacted on better promises. The, the content of the covenant itself is better than that of, of the old. What, what the relationship that we will have underneath this covenant supersedes the other. So what are these benefits, these blessings that go beyond the first covenant? Well, that brings us to detail number four. This is the longest section of, of this component and we'll call detail, detail number four the report. The report. What are the details that he's going to report to us that are contained in this covenant? Well, look back at verse 10. Verse 10 begins with the word for and it's going to begin to give descriptions of this new covenant. Remember back in verse eight, let's just read the opening part of Jeremiah's prophecy. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Now jump to verse 10, for modifies that phrase. He's gonna have a new covenant, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord. Now notice a couple of things right off the bat. Notice again the mention of Israel. It's really, really hard to get around the fact that Israel is in focus here. And we have to interpret it literally that the covenant is initially promised to the Israelites. And yes, we're grafted into that, but they are not removed. But also he gives us a time stamp here. He says that it's, it's with the house of Israel, but it's going to be after those days. After those days. Now, in order to understand this, I just have to remind you that in the book of Jeremiah, where we're pulling this quote from, there are several uh, prophecies about things that are going to happen to Israel. First of all, remember we talked about this, this exile. They're on the, the precipice of an exile. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're gonna take the people out of the land to Babylon as, as a consequence for their disobedience. And Jeremiah reveals that that exile in Babylon is going to last specifically for 70 years. A very specific number and that's exactly what happens. Look at Jeremiah 29 verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you or for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. By the way, this is the, this is a side note, but this is the proper context for Jeremiah 29, 11. This is specifically written to the people of Israel at this time period. It's a promise for their good that though they're going into 70 years of captivity, God's going to bring them back into the land. And so it wouldn't be an appropriate life verse under that 
heading, but it is a glorious verse of hope for these people that God will bring them back. And guess what? That's exactly what he does. We have the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. What's happening? The people are brought back into the land. The, the wall is rebuilt by Nehemiah and the temple construction begins again as the people come back to the word of God and come back to Yahweh. Now, why did I go through that? Because when he says here in verse 10 in our passage, after those days, this after those days is after that initial return back to the land after 70 years. So there's the return after the exile and then something's going to happen after that time period. This looks far into the future for Jeremiah. This is a time that will come with the promised redeemer, the one promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that from the seed of the woman, one would come to crush the head of the serpent. This is far into the future at that time, but he also seals it with a stamp of authority because he finishes here by saying, says the Lord, says the Lord. Now, when God speaks, God speaks with the fullness of his divine attributes. They stand behind his words as an eternal guarantee. God cannot lie by nature. God is all powerful by nature and God is perfectly good by nature. When we add all of that up together, we come away with the conclusion that he will fulfill his purposes. And so Israel and we can take it to the bank that when God says, after those days, I have another covenant that I will bring to pass, says the Lord, it absolutely is going to come to pass and it has by God's grace. But what will this new covenant be like? What are the specific characteristics of the new covenant? Well, there are three characteristics that are outlined here for us in these verses. And each one of these characteristics is, uses a common uh, Hebrew tactic of, of writing on which there are, are two truths that parallel one another. It's repetition. You see this a lot when you read the Old Testament. Two lines of truth that emphasize one key truth. We're gonna look at these together. Characteristic number one of this new covenant is an internal law of God. An internal law of God. Look back at verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And here's the first characteristic. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Now the truth is it's, it's very difficult for us to comprehend the significance of all that's contained in what was just said. But we begin to understand the significance in part when we think about the old covenant and where it was written. Where was the law written and handed to Moses? On stone tablets, right? Written on stone tablets. Obviously it was copied onto scrolls and things as well, but symbolically when it talks about where it's written, we're to think of those stone tablets in which Moses received the, the law of God and those stone tablets were kept in the Ark of the Covenant and behind the, the veil and the Holy of Holies. And yet throughout Israel's history, there is this cry for something more something more than just an external word written on stone tablets. There's a call for the word to affect the heart. God even calls the people, circumcise your hearts, O people of Israel. That what I, I long for is the heart, not just external sacrifice. We see the psalmist in places like Psalm 119, cry out to the Lord, your word I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Deuteronomy 30, 14, as, as Moses reiterates the law again before the people enter into the land, he says, but the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. And so understand this was the call even in the old covenant, but it wasn't a reality for most of the people. There were true believers under the old covenant that loved the Lord, who, who, who sought the Lord and loved his word, but the vast majority of the people did not. Throughout the old covenant, what we see is a people of God, the Jewish people at that time, who were committed to external religious activities, but continually are described as having hearts that are far from God. 
Hearts that are not only far from God, but chase after other false gods in competition with God. And this was the the characteristic of the people in the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament when Jesus arrives on the scene. He quotes Isaiah because the words Isaiah said to his generation are still true of the Jews in Jesus' generation. Matthew 15, verses seven to nine. He says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. In fact, this is unthinkable, but the people of Israel rejected God's word so, so profoundly that near the end of their their history before the exile to Babylon, under King Josiah, they actually find the book of the law. They find it because it was tucked away and lost. They so abandoned it that they had to stumble upon it and say, hey, what's this? And in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 8, verses 8 and 11, listen to how this happens. It says, then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shephon, the scribe, I've found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shephon, who read it. Shephon, the scribe, came to the king, this is King Josiah, and brought back word to the king and said, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. That was a task he had given to them. Moreover, Shephon, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shephon read it in the presence of the king. Listen to this. When the king heard the words of the book, what does he do? tore his clothes. He tears his clothes because he realizes we've completely abandoned the things that God has said. And so what I want you to see is that while there's a call for and a desire for among some under the old covenant for love for God and love for God's word, for the vast majority of the people, it remained this external document kept from their hearts. But the blessing of the new covenant is that the law of God will no longer be merely external for his people, but it will be in their hearts, written on their hearts, filling their minds. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to say, I'm gonna put it in their minds and I'm gonna write it on their hearts? I think it's pretty important for us to grasp that if we're gonna apply this rightly. And I'm gonna take a page out of my mentor, Tom Pennington's book here, and we're gonna talk about what it doesn't mean before we talk about what it means. If you've come from countryside, you know that's a, a common thing we do, and I think it's helpful, especially here in this case. What does it not mean for God to write his law in our hearts and to place it in our minds? Well, two things. First of all, it does not mean that God will give every Christian a perfect photographic memory in which they instantaneously upon regeneration know all of the Bible and have it perfectly memorized. If you've been a Christian for more than 30 seconds, you know that's not what it means, right? Because we have to struggle. We still have to discipline ourselves to memorize the word and meditate on the word. It, It takes work and effort. So it doesn't mean that. But secondly, there's something else it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God's promising just to speak new revelation to us all day throughout the day, as if that's the way that God writes new laws on our hearts. No, because notice the content here of what's being written on the heart. Verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and will write them on their hearts. So the content hasn't changed in the sense that it was the inspired words of God under the old covenant. We have the inspired words of God under the new. It is the word of God that he's going to write on the heart, not new revelation to us personally, but helping us to understand this revelation that we might live in according to it. So if it doesn't mean either of those things, then what does it mean for God to write his law in our hearts? Well, this is a a reference to the fact that under the new covenant, God would regenerate his people by giving them new spiritual hearts, new spiritual life, a heart of flesh, taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, the scripture says, and he would fill us with his spirit so that that new heart could understand the word of God and apply the word of God and have strength and motivation to obey the word of God. 
This is a reference to a new heart on which the word of God could be written so that it sticks and stays and works its work in the life of the believer. We see this from an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel 36. That's also a a promise of, of what it will be like under this new covenant. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 to 27 says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the great promise of the new covenant that God would give to his people new hearts and he would give them not just a spirit, but he says, I will put my spirit within you. The Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell within you and that mixture of the Holy Spirit dwelling within his people and his people having new hearts produces real change in which they love the word of God and desire to know it and to obey it and to live according to it. This is exactly what we have seen happen uh, since the New Testament time period as Christ is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven and he sends the spirit at Pentecost. There has been this radical change in the, the life of God's people under the new covenant. We see it described in places like Titus chapter three, verses four to seven. It says, but when the kindness of God our savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And again, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that famous verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. So for every Christian, this is what has happened to you under the new covenant. When you came to Christ, you were, as Jesus described in Nicodemus, you were born again. You were given new spiritual life, a new capacity to love God, a new capacity to love God's word. And at the same time, you were filled with the Holy Spirit who continually convicts you according to God's word and empowers you to walk in obedience to God's word. Now, some have misunderstood this reality, thinking that it means that every Christian will walk in perfect obedience from the time they come to to Christ until they die. And if they don't do that, then they must not be a Christian. But understand, that's not what this is promising here in this temporal life. That's because when we talk about the new covenant, we need to keep in mind something very important. It's a, a hermeneutical principle. That is a, an important principle for biblical interpretation. And it can be summarized as this, already, but not yet. Already, but not yet. And this is a principle we apply to several of these prophecies in, in which we are already in this temporal life experiencing some of the benefits of this new covenant. But there's coming a final, full fulfillment of this when Christ will fully glorify us and fully make us new with new bodies that fully and completely perfectly follow him. Certainly in the millennial kingdom and then obviously beyond that into the eternal kingdom on the new earth, we will experience the new covenant in its fullness, in perfection. But even here in this fallen world, in this temporal life, God gives each one of us a new heart and the Holy Spirit. And what that means is now we go to war. Now we go to war. No, we're not perfect, but we can't stay the way we were. It it burns us up to think about the way we used to live and we are dead set to follow the Lord. And so we go to war against our flesh, against the world and the temptations of the enemy. And the fruit of this is an immediate conviction of sin and a commitment to to do the hard work of, of seeking to put off sin and put on righteousness. This new heart and this filling with the Holy Spirit causes us to look back at who we used to be and say, how could I have done that? How could I have been that way? I just can't do that anymore. 
You hear testimonies, especially of those who've come to know Christ in their adult lives. Sometimes people will say to me when I ask them their testimony, they'll start by saying, now listen, Pastor, before Christ, I was, a, I was a really bad guy. And I'll say, well, what other kind of guy is there apart from Christ? Of course you were, right? I'm not expecting you to say, man, I was holy and righteous and great, but then I added Jesus and I've just continued to be holy, righteous and great. No, you haven't. That's no one's testimony. We were all filthy in our sin, needing redemption. But when a person comes to know Christ and their eyes are open and they have a new heart, suddenly they're horrified by the way they've been living. What is that? It's one of the benefits of the new covenant. It's God writing his law on our hearts to bring conviction of the word that I can't live that way anymore. That's what's happened here. Many Christians get discouraged because the battle with sin is hard, it's long, and sometimes you get knocked down and your nose gets bloodied. Sometimes you, you fail and you have to repent. And Richard Phillips in his commentary has this wonderful quote to encourage us as we battle against our sin in light of the new covenant. He says, we lament, Lord, I love things that are wicked and find precious little attraction in holy and good things. But what a great promise we have here in the new covenant in Christ. He will reveal his law to your mind. He will give you understanding and then will write it upon your heart. He will change you so that you will increasingly reflect his character. Let this encourage every struggling Christian about the benefit that will come through the sincere and persistent study of God's word. Christian, this promise here that he will write his law on our minds and on our hearts is a call to deep committed study and love for the word of God. It's through the word of God that we're sanctified. As we study the word of God, the Holy Spirit helps us understand it. He writes it on our hearts and then we take it with us. And now we have more and more of the word written on our hearts to be convicted by and to be conformed to his image. It also helps us think rightly about conviction. I think we can all say that conviction can be uncomfortable. Sometimes we can get a little squirmy as we begin to feel the conviction of the Lord. But conviction is a great gift of God. When you hear the word taught or when you read the word in the morning and all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and says, I've not been living that way. I've been dishonoring the Lord. What is that? It's the fact that God writes his word on our hearts. It's one of the gifts of the, of the, the new covenant that the spirit is within you helping you to understand and recognize what the scripture says and then by God's grace to turn and run in the other direction. So let me ask you this morning, Christian, are you convicted over your sin? When, when temptation towards sin is dangled in front of you either internally or externally, does something rise within your heart that says, don't do it, don't do that. This dishonors the Lord. And when you turn your mind to God's word in times of temptation or trouble, do you find your heart filled with hope and with joy and with encouragement to run the race, to get up and keep going? If the answer to those questions is yes, then Christian, you're experiencing the benefits of the new covenant as God's given you a new heart and his spirit to conform you to his word and to the image of Christ. This should foster gratitude in our hearts and it should foster a love for God and his word that's ever increasing. And as we study the word and God writes it on our hearts, our conscience gets more and more informed by the word so that the alarm sounds at the right times and in the right ways. Of course, this is a, some have misinterpreted this idea of God writing his law on our hearts as a, call, uh, a justification for what's called antinomianism, that is anti-law, that is, hey, God's done it all, we'll just, we live however we want because it's covered by grace. That's not what this is. This is instead summarized for us in Philippians chapter two as Paul talks to the Philippians about sanctification. He describes it this way. So then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is a call for us to give our maximum effort towards disciplining ourselves, disciplining our minds with truth, to walk in the truth, but it comes with the promise that God is the one ultimately at work in us and it's because of his work 
that any of those efforts are even there, the desire, and that they bear good fruit. And so this is the first characteristic of the new covenant that we have this internal law of God, but there's a second characteristic here for us, a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with God. Look back at the passage, verse 10. Not only will he write the law in our hearts, he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you recognize those words. Those words, in fact, are not new to the new covenant. In fact, this was stated even as one of the purposes of the old covenant. Exodus chapter six, verse seven says, then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So again, even under the old covenant, this was stated as one of the goals of the covenant. And yet, what have we said before? The old covenant was conditional, conditioned on the obedience of the people. And by their actions, they revealed their hearts. And while it was stated that the goal was for God to make a people for himself and for them to be his people and for he to be their God, they abandoned their God and they abandoned him so much that, that God inspires Hosea in Hosea chapter one, verse nine to say, you're not my people. This is what he says in Hosea one nine. And the Lord said, name him lo ami, that is name this child that Hosea has just had. And here's the reason I want you to name him that for you are not my people and I am not your God. He's speaking of the reality of things. He's, he's looking at the hearts and the waywardness and the idolatry of the people and saying, here's my indictment. I told you the goal of the covenant was that you would be my people and I'd be your God, but guess what? You're not, you're not my people and you've, you've shown it by your actions. But guess what he says in the very next verse? Not the next chapter, the very next verse. Hosea 1 verse 10 says this, yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. Notice the goodness of God. He gives this judgment, you are not my people. In the next verse, but you will be. One day you will be. Yes, under the old covenant, the people rebelled. They revealed their true heart against God. God disciplined them, but God says, I'm going, to, I'm going to fix this. It won't always be this way. You will one day be the people of the living God. And uh, the apostle Peter is inspired to say in the New Testament, pulling some Old Testament passages together that all God's people now under the new covenant are to be described this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This prophecy of Jeremiah recorded here for us in Hebrews is a promise that the declaration God made describing his people as those who would have a personal, permanent relationship with him has become a reality. Under the old covenant, God was always preserving a remnant for himself. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. The vast majority of the people are running away. A small group of faithful believers are, continue to follow him. The Bible calls them the remnant. Paul refers to the remnant in Romans chapter 11. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite. He says, I'm Jewish, a, descent, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God's not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? What did Elijah say, verse three? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars and I alone am left and they're seeking my life. Elijah says, I'm the last believer on the planet. Verse four, but what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way then there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. 
My point here is that God faithfully brought a remnant through even in the old covenant of those who truly loved him and truly knew him even into the New Testament. Even today, God is bringing a remnant out of the ethnic Jews, but God is also ransoming a people from the nations for himself and bringing these two into one man. And though the the majority of the Jews reject Christ as their Messiah, not all have or will. But this brings the key distinction here. Here's the key distinction between the old covenant and the new when it comes to this second characteristic. Under the old covenant, the Jews became participants in that covenant by their physical birth. They were born into the people of Israel and they were therefore then bound upon being born as a Jew by the covenant. And so what you have over time is a bunch of people who are born into the covenant, they're responsible to be a part of that covenant by their physical birth, but not all of them have hearts that truly love the Lord. So you have unbelievers, many of them, mixed with true believers living in this old covenant, and so the vast majority of the nation runs away from God. But the new covenant is not so. How do you enter the new covenant? Also by birth, but not physical birth but spiritual birth. We have to be born again, Jesus said in John three, so that every single participant of the new covenant has been born into it by the spirit. They've become a new man, a new woman. You have a new heart within you so that what we have now is an entire group of people, every one of them who has a true heart for God and loves the Lord and will follow him. And so when he says, you will be my people, I will be their God, they shall be my people, it's not that this is a new statement, it's not that there's not some way in which that was true in the old covenant, that is true, there's some continuity here, but what's new here is now this is true of all the people under this covenant, because all of them have been born of the Spirit. That universal application of a whole group of people who are true believers who love the Lord brings us to the third and final characteristic that's mentioned here of the new covenant, a universal knowledge of God. A universal knowledge of God. Verse 11, and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. Now listen to that, they shall not teach everyone his brother. As we mentioned, the people wandered so far from God at one one point that that they lost literally the scrolls, they lost the word, they lost the book. They have to find it in the temple. And because they walked away from the word of God, they walked away from God himself, it ended up in idolatry of of, of the, the saddest kind in which they're literally sacrificing their own children to foreign idols, and yet yet what we see here is that in this new covenant, everyone's gonna know the Lord. There won't be this need of a call of the prophets like Jeremiah, so Jeremiah is like a voice sounding out into the darkness, know the Lord, Israel, what are you doing? Why are you following after these idols? There's a need for teaching to come, know the Lord, and the people harden their hearts. What this is saying here is that under the new covenant, there's no need to tell people to know the Lord because they know the Lord by, by necessity if they're part of the covenant. But by the way, just a clarification, this is not saying that there'll be no need for teaching in general under the old covenant. Otherwise, we're wasting our time this morning. Ephesians 4 and other places makes it clear that teaching of the scriptures is to be a regular part of the life of the church. Specifically, what does he say won't need to be taught to them? They won't need to be taught, know the Lord because all will know him. It doesn't mean that all will instantly know everything about him, but they will know him. They have a personal relationship with him. They will love him. Otherwise, they wouldn't be part of the covenant. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but on numerous occasions, I've had the chance to encounter strangers who turned out to be believers and found that we have an immediate connection just because we both love the Lord. This happens to me often on airplanes. My goal, I don't fly a ton, but when I do fly, I I, I try by God's grace as I have opportunity to to get into conversations with the people next to me for the sake of the gospel. 
And, and this has happened on more than one occasion where I've begun a conversation and begun to work my way towards the gospel. And then as I get there, I find that this person already knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now we just begin to fellowship and we start to talk about our testimonies and how did God save you and what are you reading and what, what is God doing in your life? And I've been so encouraged by these strangers. I've never met them before, but because we both know the Lord, we're both under this new covenant, we have an immediate connection. They know him, I know him, we love him, and he has been good to us. By the way, that, that's a good reminder that even with brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on secondary matters, and we may not be able to, to we, we wouldn't go to the same church necessarily because of our differences, doesn't mean that there's not still a basis of unity around the gospel at some level. It doesn't mean those secondary issues aren't important, they are, but if a person is a true believer, they're a true member of the new covenant, then in the gospel, we at least have unity around the fact that we know the Lord. This is the experience of the new covenant. And notice that it's not, it's not just the prophets, not just the elders and the pastors. It says it's gonna be everyone. He says, everyone will know him from the least to the greatest of them. That means from the eight-year-old child who's been saved 10 minutes to the 100-year-old man in the nursing home who's forgotten so many things but still remembers the love of his Savior, they will all know him. It reminds me of 1 Peter 1.8. I read it this morning. Though you have not seen him, you love him. That's what it is to be in the new covenant. It really is amazing. The, the only reason that this could happen to all of us, that we could be here today saying we love this, this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we've never met in the flesh is because God has done a work in our hearts. He's given us a new spiritual eyes, new spiritual life, a new heart to know and love the Lord. And so we declare, yes, though I have not seen him, I love him, I know him. Reminds me of the famous quote by John Newton as he says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. It's important to realize though, as we think about each of these characteristics that they exist and they, they continue because they're all upheld and reinforced by one overarching truth. And we're gonna enter into it here because it's detail number five, we'll call the reinforcement. But really he's going to introduce this idea here. He's already touched on it before, but we're gonna go deeply into this in chapter nine. But this is the reinforcement. Think of this as the rebar and the concrete that holds it all together. How can these characteristics be true? Well, here's the reinforcement. Look down at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This is the foundation of these truths. Under the old covenant, as we've already discussed, there's this continual reminder of sins. You come with your sacrifice for your previous sins, no sooner do you walk away from the altar and guess what, you've got new sins in your heart and you need another sacrifice to come for those. And what you see is the constant smoke on the altar is not only a sign that there's forgiveness in Yahweh, but I'm constantly in need of it. I can't get through, the, I can't, there's no sacrifice for sin as a category. There's a sacrifice here for each of my individual sins and I keep bringing them, but, but I keep remembering other ones that still need to be confessed and atoned. God, we need a sacrifice for all our sins, past, present, and future. And that's what this new covenant rests on. It rests on the fact that in Christ there is full and complete eternal atonement for sin. God declares, just again, think of this in context. Here's this group of people, they're, they're disobedient, they're, they're about to, to be crushed under the weight of the Babylonians because of their sin. And yet God comes to Jeremiah and through his mouth says to his people, yes, you're about to be crushed. There's punishment coming but there's another day coming. Right now, your sins are about to overwhelm you with temporal consequences, but there's coming a day in which I will wash away all your iniquities and I will remember your sins no 
more. Notice the grace of God, even in their darkest day. There's a better covenant coming, a better covenant built on better promises by a better sacrifice through the Lord Jesus Christ so that in Christ, Christian, the total sum of the debt of sin you owed is nailed to the cross, all of it, and he will remember it no more, never to be brought up again, never to bring you in and say, I I know we've discussed it, but I just need to go back. Why did you do that? Never done atoned for. This is Colossians chapter two, verses 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Christian, your heart should be dancing in your chest right now as you think about these things. The goodness of God should be washing over you like wave after wave on the ocean sand. We should stop and bask in the goodness of the gospel, that great gospel, the gospel that we we first heard on the, the, the first day when our eyes were open, but that we need to hear every day after that though we are a sinful people, that we have strayed from God, that we have not just committed sins, but we are sinners by nature. In the midst of our sin, God found us out. God came to us with the good news of the gospel of his son, that in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived the life we failed to live, gave that life as a sacrifice on the cross and rose again, in him there is new life, an atonement from all our sins for all who would repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ alone. If you're here this morning and you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, understand this is the best news you could ever hear that's offered to you. You are a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and that has been provided to you not by your works and your goodness, but in the person of Jesus Christ. It is on this that the new covenant stands. It is because of this that God can declare, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the good news of the gospel. It's the good news of the new covenant. And finally, as we close, briefly let me turn your attention to verse 13. This is component number three, the summation. Very simply, he draws all of this together to remind us of the point Why have we gone on this journey through Jeremiah 31? Well, this is why. Verse 13, when he said a new covenant, that is when he said it here in Jeremiah 31, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. This is the point, remember, we launched into this from verse six, he says there's a new covenant, it's got better promises, and here's the proof, Jeremiah 31, and here's the conclusion. The fact that God, by his own mouth, by his own inspiration through the mouth of Jeremiah, says a new covenant is coming, but the fact that God says that means he's made the old covenant obsolete, and it's ready to pass away. You know, I believe this letter was likely written just a few years before the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. So that means that the temple sacrifices for right now, when this is written, are still happening day in and day out. That these Jewish Christians are still watching their family members and others go and make their sacrifices. And what the author is saying here is, I, I know you see the residual of this, but God's already made it obsolete and it's ready to pass away. And it won't be very many years until that's exactly what happened. You know, there's been no sacrifices in the temple for the Jews since 70 AD. In in fulfillment of the prophecy that Christ himself gave, that not one brick would stand on another, that temple was torn down. And it's to help us all understand that that was just a shadow. And when the substance comes, the shadow fades. The substance is the person of Jesus Christ and the good news of the new covenant 
a forgiveness of sins only by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we have the summation. And this will usher us in into chapter nine as he continues to discuss these things. But before we go, I wanna leave you with just two admonitions, two obvious applications of this wonderful passage. Number one, give thanks for the new covenant. Give thanks for the new covenant. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you honestly spent time in prayer of thanksgiving for the specific blessings that are yours because you live under the new covenant? For example, how long has it been since you've thanked God for writing the law on your new heart? Thank God for the privilege of being called one of his children, that he is your God and you are one of his. Have you thanked God just for the privilege of knowing him, of being able to say, though I have not seen him, I love him. That's a work of God in me and therefore I ought to give thanks. Have, have you thanked God that not some of your sins have been forgiven and forgotten, but all of your sins have been forgiven and forgotten? May we have hearts of gratitude for the fact that we live under the new covenant. And then finally, live in, live in light of the new covenant. Live in light of it. The privileges of the new covenant are to motivate us to take full advantage of the things that God has given us. It's a call to fervently pursue the word of God. As we study it, the Lord illuminates it and writes it on our hearts and applies it to us. Remember that sanctification comes in and through the word. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so Christian, can you honestly say that you prioritize the word of God day in and day out in your personal life? Not just do you come to hear the word taught, we ought to do that, we're commanded to do that, but is the word of God central in your personal life? Do you read it? Do you memorize it? Do you hide it in your heart as the Lord then writes it on your heart? Do you meditate on the word? Do you make your life decisions by first asking, what does the Bible say? Is that the guiding light for you? Do you disciple others in the word? Are you meeting with other Christians to pour into them? And is the word of God the content of how you encourage them and instruct them? Do you evangelize with the word of God? The word of God that's been written on our new hearts is to be the central component of our daily life. And as the Lord illuminates it and convicts us of it and applies it to our life, then we grow in holiness. Along the same lines, are you sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit through the Word? When you come across something in the Scripture and it, and it, and it, it kind of pricks your conscience do you try to explain it away and change what's here or do you realize it is I that must change? That I sit under this book. You know, as Christians, we are to educate our conscience with the scripture. As we read the scripture, we know more of how to follow Christ, but we're to cultivate a sensitive conscience. What that means is it's very dangerous to ignore your conscience, Christian. The scriptures are full of warnings that when your conscience goes off, you listen. And yes, keep educating it by the scripture. There are times in my life I've realized later that I was convicted of something that actually wasn't a sin, but Paul is clear, if your conscience convicts you, don't go against it. You might go and study and research and find later that you misunderstood, but never squelch your conscience because it's a gift from the Lord. And under the new covenant with a new heart, we now have a, a conscience that is more and more conformed to the way God intends for it to be. So we cultivate a sensitive conscience by quick obedience. We squelch our conscience by pushing it aside and ignoring it. Don't make that mistake. And then finally, the fact that we live under the new covenant in which God has been merciful to our iniquities and remembers our sins no more, teaches us how we ought to live as Christians. Let me ask you, are you serving Christ out of fear and guilt or love and gratitude? When you seek to obey Christ, are you doing it out of fear and guilt or love and gratitude? One of the fruits of the fact that God has forgiven all our sins and forgotten them is the fact that we now have the privilege of serving God for the right reasons. 
Not just the privilege of serving God, but for the right reasons. Because we already live in a state of full forgiveness, we're not serving God to earn anything from him. The Bible does speak of rewards for obedience, but the primary motivation of the Christian is his love for God. Do you see God, Christian, weighing over you with a frown, ready to strike you down the moment you step out of line, or do you see Christ with a smile, God with a smile because of what Christ has done for you? 1 John 5, 3 says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, how can that be? How can its commandments not be burdensome? They're not burdensome because we have a new heart, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the knowledge that our sins are already forgiven. And so we now live in obedience, not to earn anything from God, but because we love him and we want to serve him. This is life under the new covenant. And it's my prayer that we as Christians would recognize the gift that is ours and never take it for granted. May our lives be marked by the fact that we've been bought by the blood of Christ and now we are his with his word written on our hearts that we might walk in faithfulness to him. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for the treasure of your word which so clearly teaches us of the, the gifts that we have in Christ, to know him, to be conformed to him, that we have your spirit to, to help us in these things, that you've not left us without the resources to grow in the things you've called us to. We're so thankful to be new covenant Christians. Help us to live that way. Help us to express that gratitude in everything that we do today. We ask it in the name of Christ, amen.